please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm number 15. Psalm number 15 for our preaching this morning. Psalm 15. And in Psalm number 15, we're going to be looking at this psalm, these five verses of Psalm number 15. And we're going to be looking at this psalm under the title, Citizens of Heaven. Citizens of Heaven. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Let us hear God's holy word. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own heart and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Amen. So our title once again is Citizens of Heaven. Citizens of Heaven. What does it mean to be a citizen of a country? To be a citizen of a nation? Now usually, much of the time, it's a great and wonderful privilege. It can be a great and wonderful privilege. Now, as imperfect as the Western countries are, Britain, Republic of Ireland, United States, Canada, wherever you want to mention, it is a great privilege to be a citizen of one of these countries. And many people who who don't grow up in these countries and come to live in the West really, really appreciate that. Many of them fleeing tyranny, oppression, Difficulties in their own country, horrible, oppressive regimes, and they go to freedom in the West. And they're so grateful to be in many of these countries. They want to become people who are allowed to dwell in the country, and they want to become, often, citizens of this country with the special privileges that being a citizen brings, voting and other things. In the places they run from, they will most likely not enjoy the same blessings. They will often be under cruel and oppressive taskmasters, living in fear or in terror. Now, to be a citizen is not just about living in a place, is it? It's not just living, here's my address and that's it. It's far more than that. It's about walking in a way that promotes that way of life. Promoting that country or that civilization. Now that seems very strange to us today. In a day that's very, we're very individuals. We're all individuals and the sense of community across many nations has become pulled apart At least in Northern Ireland, we've held on to much of it. But we see a lot of people not really even wanting community anymore. But to be part of a country, to be a citizen, is to really be part of that. 
to really pull in the same direction. Put it another way, to not be fighting with the enemies of that nation, to pr- promote the cause of that nation. Now, there's a healthy love, isn't there, for our country? There's a healthy love, and there's a good love we should have for our country, and we should always be careful not to have an idolatrous love of our country on this earth. But there is a country, there is a kingdom that deserves our undivided, our absolute and full support with far greater privileges than any of the citizenships on this earth, with with a far stronger army in which we all serve in. Yes, we serve in an army as Christians. With a far greater commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is one who is truly worthy of all of our loyalty. Many rulers on this earth are not worthy of our loyalty, but the Lord surely is. We are brought into this heavenly country, into the heavenly presence of God, a far better country, never to be deported, never to be removed from the presence of Him. If we have faith, if we have confidence, if we have expectation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord who is spoken about here in verse 1, Lord who shall abide in thy tabernacle. What is that country? It is within the tabernacle of God. It is at the top of Zion's own hill. But not everyone can come. Not everyone wants to come. Only those who see the tyranny of what they leave behind and they embrace the freedom of that which is above. Our first point that we're going to look at here this morning is the privilege. The privilege. Verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? This may seem like a very strange verse if you read it. You're probably going, well, which is it? It says, who shall abide in thy tabernacle and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Is it this tabernacle or is it this hill or mountain? What is the verse saying? Now, what do they both have in common? What does the holy mountain have in common With the tabernacle, the presence of Almighty God. The blessed presence of Almighty God. That's what both of these places share. Now, we also have to point out as well, God is not confined or boxed in to any place or location. Our God is omni. Presence. That is, he is everywhere. You could drive a million miles in that direction and you would not be able to escape God. Our God is omnipresent. There is no escaping him. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, this is Solomon speaking here. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. 
So Solomon, building the temple of God, rightly knows that this temple, where God will dwell in his blessed presence, cannot contain God. Could not contain God. Even though they met with God in the Holy of Holies. But our God is not in any way confined to there. I wonder if the boys and girls here have any pets. And have you have any pets in the house where they escape out of where they're supposed to be? And they run out and they go, oh no, they're not supposed to be in that room. Or they're not supposed to be on the kitchen table like our cat. What do you have to do? You have to maybe catch them and put them back where they're supposed to be. Maybe if it's a guinea pig, you've got to put them back in the cage. If it's a dog, you've got to put them back on the leash. If it's a cat, maybe you put them back outside. But we cannot think of God that way, can we, boys and girls? No. Our God cannot be contained. That is what's so special about God. We can be contained. We can be trapped. We can be kept into a place. We can be locked up because we are in one place. Our God is not. Our God is everywhere and he's not limited to any one place. Our pets are finite. We are finite. That means we're just in one place. That is what's so special. When we meet with our God, when we meet with our God here this morning, we are meeting with a God who is not contained in this building. You could go worship God out on the grass. You could worship God in any location. The location does not matter. What matters is that God's blessed presence comes down and meets with his people in the public worship of God. That's what's so special about it. And it's not just a God who can be contained. He cannot be contained. He is the infinite God who is allowing you into his blessed presence. It's a blessing to be in the presence of Almighty God. And as a citizen of heaven, to come into his blessed presence is a wonderful privilege because not everyone is allowed into that presence. No, the unbeliever cannot escape God. He cannot run far enough away to escape the eyes of Almighty God, the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. He cannot escape that. But we, by faith in Jesus Christ, were allowed to come and to abide in the tabernacle of God. And we are allowed to dwell in the holy hill of Almighty God or the holy mountain of Almighty God. Not everyone's allowed in. What would normally happen? If you're not allowed in and you want to escape through the barrier, you want to escape and try to sneak in without permission into the presence of the king... Death. That's all that would await you. Now, the psalmist says this, Lord, who? Who has allowed this great and wonderful privilege? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ have but a small taste of the blessed presence of Almighty God. And we tasted, we but tasted here this morning. Because we can dwell in the presence of Almighty God. And when God comes down and blesses us with his presence, 
He blesses his bride. You see that, friends? When God is pleased to dwell amongst us, was actually some of the language that was used in the 1643 Solemn League and Covenant. And they talked about repenting of certain sins, that God would be pleased to dwell in our midst and to bless us. That's what we seek here this morning. That the pure and all-knowing God in his purity would be pleased to be in our midst. Now you might be thinking here this morning, and I pray that you are, I'm a sinner. Why would a thrice holy God want to be near me in any way? And the thing is, dear friends, yes, you are a sinner. I am also a sinner. And sinners will not be allowed into the presence of Oh, Almighty God. God's presence is pure. God's presence is holy. And that is what is so special about it. It's a privilege. And only those who are viewed and seen as perfect, righteous, and holy in the eyes of God will be allowed this great and wonderful privilege. So we've looked at the privilege. Number two now, we're going to look at the pathway. The pathway. People talk about a pathway to being a citizen. Maybe you fill out certain forms. Maybe you do certain interviews. Maybe you have to pass an exam. Now there's a person described here who is allowed this great and wonderful privilege to come into the tabernacle of God and the holy presence of Almighty God. It says in verse 2, He that walketh uprightly. And worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. A rather unique person is described here. Who, we may ask, he that worketh worketh uprightly. Now, let us, before we think about this, and as we look at the, the, the person who's described here, Does God lower his standards to allow people in to the presence, the blessed presence of Almighty God? And the ultimate expression of that blessed presence is heaven itself. Does he lower his standards ever? No. He never lowers his standards for anyone. He will not allow sin in or the sinner in. Only those who are viewed and seen as righteous before God to have that privilege. If we remind ourselves of the character of God in Psalm 5, 5. In Psalm number 5, verse 5, it says this. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. In Psalm 7, verse 11, it says this. Psalm 7, Verse 11, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. There's actually the idea in that verse is God is angry every day, but the whole point of it is God's character, I am that I am, revealed from the midst of the burning bush, his face towards sin and the sinner is forever wrath. Now, towards that which is good, it's always pleasure. And in all these things, our God does not change. His standard never 
changes for anyone or for anything. And to be into the presence of Almighty God. And if we think that God will drop his standards, we actually say something shocking. What are we saying? That God can somehow deny himself. That God can somehow deny himself. Remind ourselves, let us remind ourselves of what what Jesus said to the Pharisees at the end of John chapter 8. At the end of John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking and he calls himself something very unique. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, what do they think of that? Saying, well, don't understand what he's talking about. Well, they actually did. In verse 59 it says this, Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went into the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They were so enraged because they saw that what Jesus saying is, he is the great I am. When God spoke to Moses out of the midst of the burning bush, he revealed his name, I am that I am. The same phrase. I am the unchanging one. And Jesus, all the way throughout the New Testament as well, repeats this idea, I am the door. He's really saying, I'm the great I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the truth, the way and the life. The unchanging one. And because he's unchanging, his standards do not change. Can God's standards change in coming into the presence of Almighty God? Is also like asking as well, can God change? Now you might say, no one would say such a thing. Who would say such a thing that God could change? You'd be surprised. The person who comes into the presence of Almighty God to enjoy this citizenship of Zion must realize they're coming before the one who cannot deny himself. Who is perfect, pure, most loving, most wise in every way. And so what must be the case for the person coming before them? Your sin must be dealt with before God. And you must have the righteousness of another in order to enter in. You must be viewed as perfect, as as if you had kept the whole law of God. All that the law requires in thought, in word, in deed. He that walketh uprightly. This This is all throughout the life. And worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Not just outward obedience to the law of God. But in your heart. None of us. Not one person in this building has ever lived up to the standard. Required by the law of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you might be here this morning. And wondering, well, how can anyone enter in? How can anyone come into the presence of Almighty God if none have kept the standard? Well, there's only one who has kept the standard perfectly. There's only one who has gone along this pathway required 
to enter into the presence of Almighty God. One man who is good, righteous, and holy. His perfect works. The point of this, dear friends, is we must, in coming to God, you have to give up any confidence in your own works. Now, most of us are happy to, to trust in, in God for most of it, but we all seem to think as, as fallen creatures, well, if I can just do that little bit, if that work, yes, God can do most of it, but I need to do some of it. That is the fallen heart of man. It's another gospel. You have to say to yourself, this standard, this mountain to climb, it's impossible. I can't climb it. Not only can I not climb it, I can't get off the floor. It's not like we're just about reaching there. No, no, we're not even, we're dead on the floor. We're not even approaching the glory of God. So our own works must be given up on. We must look within and see nothing and nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross. I cling. That must be our attitude. Because there's only one person who has kept this standard perfectly. All that the law demands since the fall of Adam. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us, all of us in Adam, it says in Psalm 14 verse 3. Psalm 14 verse 3. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Oh, but, but isn't that those people out there have never come to church? No, that is every single person born in Adam. Everyone. Everyone. And unless you're born again of the Spirit of God, you will not want to come. Unless you're born again of the Spirit of God, you're going to think, you know what? I'm actually quite good. I'm not that bad. Well, I've done some things, but not worthy of hell. Friends, there is none good. No, not one. There is none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. They don't even seek after God. In verse 2 of Psalm 14, it says, As the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Now, the psalm is not saying here, God is learning things. This is said in language that we can understand that we would learn this. We don't naturally, of our own selves. The natural man does not seek after God. He does not seek God. Only the person who's been born again of the Spirit of God seeks after God. God knows man. And we often can deceive ourselves to thinking that we are good, but none of us hold up to the standard. None of us walk rightly. None of us keep the law of God. Your, your obedience, dear friends, cannot be the answer this morning. We must look for the righteousness. We must look for the pathway Provided by another. So we've looked at the privilege. The pathway. Now number three. We're going to look at the peace. The peace. Verse number three. 
He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Our works do not produce peace with God. They don't. And actually, the works of the perfectly righteous person is described in such a way that with his tongue, he does not create war. It says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our righteousnesses, the greatest things we've ever done, the nicest things we've ever done, have all been tainted by sin. They're filthy rags before God. Does the pure presence of God embrace filthy rags? Isaiah 6 verse 3 says this, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And I remember thinking for years, I couldn't get my mind around that verse. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does that mean? The infinite glory of God cannot be contained. It is in its greatness and its might, the infinite holy and purity of God does it embrace our sin, our filthy rags. Does it produce wrath Or does it produce peace? Now if we trust in our own works. What is is this? The situation is. We're at war with God. We're at war with God. We actually backbite. Not just against our neighbors. Created in the image of God. But actually against God himself. We speak evil about him. And not only about God, but also against our neighbor created in the image of God. We gossip about our neighbor and we also gossip about God. Along with the devil. There is a war that can be seen with our tongue. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. There's almost a summarizing here of verse 3 of the activity, what we call today is gossip. Gossip. The first part is he's backbiting, saying things, doing evil to his neighbor. And then the other part, taketh up or receiving or enduring Basically passing along information. Believing a false report. And friends, we may know Jesus Christ. But we all have to be aware of the danger of the tongue. The dangerous weapon that the tongue is. In James chapter 3, it tells us about the danger of the tongue. James chapter 3, verses 5 to verse 8. Even so, the tongue is a little member. And boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. That it defileth the whole body. 
and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. If you see those images in the news, you see those forest fires, and you learn of the, the conditions that causes those forest fires, dry weather. And there's this dry fuel for that fire all around us. That is the people. And a little spark, what can it do? It can burn down the whole forest. The tongue is a dangerous weapon that can cause much damage. And beware, dear friends. The, the tongue can be used to build up and to encourage other believers in Jesus Christ, but it can also be used as a weapon. Now, we live in an internet age, so we might as well as admit as well, not just the tongue, also the keyboard, the Twitter, the Facebook, whatever the thing, the, the text messages, the emails. This is all part of the tongue. And what does it produce naturally? War, not peace. And it's a thing that we're all guilty of. All of us. To greater or lesser extents. All of us, to a degree, we backbite. We shouldn't. It's a horrendous thing that we do, but we shouldn't. And when we find out that we're doing it, we need to repent. But only Christ could ever fulfill this requirement of the law. Christ never backbiteth his neighbor. He never spoke evil against his neighbor. He always spoke the truth. Or put it another way, if you put that neighbor in front of him, he could say the same thing when the person's there and when he's not there. I find that's often a good test of whether it's gossip or not. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, And when he had gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked, Good master, what should I do that I inherit life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. That is the standard. Jesus is saying, You're calling me good master. Why? Because there's only one good. Jesus is and was forever God. And he is forever God. Matthew Poole wrote about this in, in, in Psalm 15 verse 3. He says this. He doth not take away or diminish his neighbor's good name. Neither by denying him his due praises. Or by laying anything to his charge falsely. Or without sufficient cause or evidence. And we are all guilty of this. But Christ is not. Christ's work brings peace. Peace. Everlasting peace. Unlike our tongue, our desire to believe a falsehood about our neighbor, it's not just whether, we, whether we've started the rumor, but whether we'll believe it, receive it, and then pass it on to the next person. I remember reading in history, there was, there's been many dictators who have spread information or lies about their political opponents. And they would spread it around in pamphlets. And then everybody would get really, really nervous and go, oh. and then they would overthrow the government based upon half-truths and suspicion. 
Christ is the Prince of Peace. He kept the law of God. Ever bringing peace to all those who trusted in him. And if anyone upon this earth suffered. It was Christ. But he never ever backbiteth with his tongue. Tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. In Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 it says this. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. But this peace of the son of David. This kingdom shall never end. And dear friend this morning. Do you want this peace? It is yours by faith. In the one who is the prince of peace. The one who perfectly fulfills. Verse 3. The one who loved his neighbor perfectly. As himself. The one who loved the Lord God. His father in heaven. Every moment and every second. It is to him. We seek for forgiveness. It is to him we come for peace. Because the only way to enter into that tabernacle. The only way to enter into that holy hill. Is through Jesus Christ. Who is the truth. The way and the life. He is that peace. That has broken down the middle wall of partition. Between those outside. And those inside. He has broken down that middle wall. And our final point this morning is the proof. The proof or the evidence, the privilege, the pathway, the peace. And finally number four, the proof. The proof, verses four and five. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned. And he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury. Nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. While we cannot keep the law of God in the way Christ did. This psalm perfectly describes Christ. Who is that man who may come into the presence of Almighty God? It is the man, Christ Jesus. But while, yes, we are represented by him in the throne of grace, we can come to him because he represents us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness by faith. However, what is described here in, in, in Psalm 15 will be true about you. Yes, imperfectly. This fruit will be seen imperfectly, but there will be this fruit seen. Because I'll put it this way if you are following Christ, you will be like him. Not perfectly like him, but to a degree, you will be like him. Proof, there will be proof of your outward, outwardly of your citizenship of heaven. There will be proof to the world, even around you, that you have spent time with God, that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good within his tabernacle and within his holy hill. It says in verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned or despised or scorned. And I know we live in an age where we think, well, we 
love everybody, don't we? There's a sense here in this verse, it's speaking of a well-pleasing love. A love and a delight that we get, not from people who are living wickedly, but a, a type of love that we get from those who love the Lord. It says, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He honoreth them that fear the Lord. There's a sense in which we prefer the company of Christians, isn't there, as believers in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we're not going to have any non-Christian friends. But we know that our non-Christian friends serve another master. We want them to come to know Christ. But there's greater joy and peace with Christian friends, discussing godly topics. And I know today, this is something we struggle with today. Talking about the Lord. And I think, dear friends, one of the reasons we struggle on the Sabbath day in our modern era, it's not even the technology. It's not even all the distractions. It's about the fact that we struggle to talk about God. It's we struggle in our knowledge of God. And if we struggle in our knowledge of God, the Sabbath day will not be a delight. There's a sense in which the Sabbath should almost be, wow, that was over really quickly. I wish I had a second. We wish to be around Christians to discuss his holy and infallible word because we see wonderful things. And your brother or sister in Christ, they will see wonderful things that they will share with you. You'll get excited about it. They'll get excited about it. And that will encourage one another. And it's in that atmosphere that the Sabbath day is a delight unto the Christian church. But it says also in verse 4, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. This is a person with integrity. This is a person who does not change depending on which way the wind is blowing. This is a person who is a person that will swear to his own hurt and will do the right thing. Of course, again, this is describing Jesus Christ perfectly. But this is where we ought to aim for. Not a person of change, but a person of integrity. Do your friends at work know where you stand on things? Do they know you're a Christian? Yes, by your profession, but more than that, by your conduct and by your life. In verse 5, he putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. Now, usury was not allowed in the Old Testament, and it's kind of lending to people expecting interest, loans, in return. But the idea here is the person often, and you'll see this, oppression took place with the orphans and the widows. People took advantage of people in difficult times rather than helping them. And the person here that is described, whose heart has been changed, is not seeking to profit from the misfortune of others. They seek to help. They swear through their own heart and changeth not. They don't take reward against the innocent. And there's a promise here that he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Now yes, we, we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But there's also a sense in which this, if you do these things, though imperfectly, we don't trust in them. If this is the fruit of our lives, 
You in Christ Jesus shall never be moved. If we examine a fruit tree. If, the, if somebody tells you, here is an apple tree, what do you expect to see from that apple tree? Do you expect to see lemons? Do you expect to see oranges? No, you expect to see apples. And a Christian tree with a Christian root planted by God, you expect to see Christian fruit. None of us are perfect. Our fruit will never save us. But it is evidence that God has done a work in our hearts. But this morning you might be asking yourself, what if there's no proof of me having entered into the blessed presence of God? Perhaps you're wondering, have I been truly changed by God? You may have been young when it happened. You may have been in your mother's womb, perhaps. You may have been too young to remember that first time when you began to believe. The question is not, when did you believe? The question is, do you believe today? Are you growing in repentance and faith? Because, dear friends, the person without fruit, the tree without root, will have no fruit. And the tree without fruit, what will happen to it? It is chopped down and is no more good than for firewood. Friends, do not be deceived. Are you truly born again? Do you do these things that you shall never be moved? Trusting in Jesus' finished work and in his finished work alone. But in trusting in him, you bear fruit. And as you bear fruit, the Lord comforts your heart that you truly belong to him. Amen.